Welcome back to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholz. In this episode, we're continuing a recent session from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia, titled, Reducing the Burden of HPV-Associated Cancer and Disease. Now I'd like to talk about the important ways that practices can improve uptake of HPV vaccine among their patients through education, communication, and quality improvement. Providers can increase their own knowledge regarding vaccine recommendations and the safety of recommended vaccines using credible sources, such as the CDC. It's critical that providers improve communication with parents and patients to strengthen their HPV vaccine recommendation by providing accurate overall messages about the HPV vaccine and anticipating and preparing to respond to specific concerns from parents. Providers can also utilize clinical practice strategies shown to improve immunization rates, such as recall systems, screening tools, and standing orders. The use of immunization information systems and the use of vaccination quick visits are also helpful. Quick visits in particular save time for families coming in for vaccination only. Here we see that the reminder recall systems significantly affect vaccination rates among adolescents. Adolescent patients of four practices in the Denver metro area who received reminder recall messages consisting of a letter, two robocalls, and a second letter experienced higher coverage rates for recommended adolescent vaccines, including an approximately 73% higher rate for HPV vaccine than those who did not receive reminder recall messages. Again, provider recommendation is key to improving immunization coverage and should be based on clear messages to parents about the importance of the vaccine for disease prevention. There are data clearly indicating that HPV vaccine can prevent cancer, including cervical, vaginal, vulvar, and anal cancer. The vaccine is safe and effective, and there are no serious adverse events associated with the administration of the HPV vaccine. Vaccine is only effective if given prior to exposure to the virus, so giving the vaccine at a younger age is ideal. Further support for immunizing at the recommended 11 to 12 year age is that the vaccine induces higher antibody levels when given to younger patients. The vaccine is now recommended for both girls and boys to protect against disease outcomes. And while a discussion of mode of disease transmission may be appropriate, the way the disease is transmitted should not be a factor in determining the value of preventing disease. The vaccine is extremely effective and it prevents cancer. This is primary prevention truly at its best. Despite the power of these key messages, many parents and providers still worry about what should be discussed with the young adolescent patient regarding the HPV vaccine. How much information should be given regarding the disease the vaccine prevents and whether it's necessary to discuss other sexual health issues. The discussion with patients about the mode of viral transmission should be age appropriate. If the patient is a developmentally young 11-year-old, an in-depth discussion regarding the sexually transmitted nature of the virus is not necessary or even necessarily appropriate. Although the vaccine is ideally administered to 11 to 12-year-olds, for youth who are more developmentally advanced or who are chronologically older, a more detailed discussion regarding the purpose and benefits of the HPV vaccine actually provides a great opportunity to enter into a larger discussion about sexual health and sexual health maintenance. 
And for those who need reassurance, multiple studies have shown that vaccination with the HPV vaccine does not increase sexual risk-taking behaviors. So in summary, new immunization recommendations provide enhanced primary prevention opportunities for adolescents. Public health policies at state and federal levels can be implemented to support adolescent immunizations. And importantly, providers can implement communication and quality improvement strategies in the office to improve adolescent immunization rates. And I'd like to turn the podium over to Dr. Lori Markowitz. Thank you. Well, while this Grand Rounds has focused primarily on the U.S. vaccination program, I will very briefly mention some global issues. The largest burden of HPV-associated cancer worldwide is from cervical cancer. And of note, cervical cancer is the second most common cancer in women worldwide, responsible for over half a million cases and a quarter of a million deaths each year. And most of these occur in developing countries where there's no cervical cancer screening programs. The burden of cervical cancer is greatest in parts of Africa, Asia, and South America. Now, since HPV vaccines were first licensed in 2006, vaccination programs have been introduced in more than 40 countries worldwide. And most of these countries and the first countries to introduce vaccine were developed countries in North America, Western Europe, and Australia. In the past few years, other countries in Latin America and some other middle-income countries have also introduced vaccine. And challenges to introduction of the vaccine include expense of the vaccine, competing priorities with introduction of other new vaccines, and the adolescent target age group. Now, there are a variety of efforts supporting HPV vaccine introduction worldwide and cervical cancer prevention, particularly in countries with highest burden of disease. Of note, WHO recommends introduction of HPV vaccination as part of a comprehensive strategy for cervical cancer prevention, which could include screening and treatment. The Global Alliance on Vaccines and Immunizations, or GAVI, will fund HPV vaccine for the first time in selected eligible countries. And support for cervical cancer prevention through public-private partnerships focusing on screening is also ongoing. One of the examples is the Pink Ribbon Red Ribbon Initiative, which seeks, which seeks to provide screening and treatment in low-resource countries with high burden of disease. The role and capacity for cervical cancer screening, of course, will vary by country. And so in summary for the entire session, just want to say there's a substantial burden of HPV-associated disease that can be decreased by use of um, our available safe and effective prophylactic HPV vaccines. In the United States, vaccine coverage is below target goals, but programs are in place, as we heard today, to monitor coverage, safety, and impact post-licensure, as well as measures that can be implemented to improve vaccine uptake. And progress is being made to introduce vaccine in low-income countries where cervical cancer cases and deaths occur, and the largest burden exists. Okay, well, um, thank you all for your attention, and I'd like to open the session now to the uh, question and answer period. Thank you very much to the entire panel for an excellent set of presentations. I'm Ray Strickers, Immunization Services at CDC, and my question is, um, well, this is encouraging, but it's slow progress. So as Willie Sutton said, why don't we go where the money is? The most successful vaccination programs in the United States are vaccinating children under the age of two. Was it considered that this vaccine might be given to young, very young children when it was first being looked at? 
And if not, why can't we consider it now? Well, as you know, the, the vaccine right now is, is licensed um, down to age nine years of age, and that's because the trials were done down to that age range. And I think one of the main considerations when the vaccine trials were designed was to try to um, do the studies, first of all, in, in individuals where you'd be able to, to see impact of disease, and then to focus on the age group where you'd be able to see impact um, soon. There has been a lot of discussion about lowering the age for vaccination. There are some, um, I think, of the manufacturers starting to look at, at this issue of being able to do trials in younger um, individuals. Data on duration of protection was felt to be important early on before those trials were undertaken. I think there's accumulating evidence that there's very good duration of protection after vaccination. So I think some of these issues are being discussed. But I think the main issue was targeting the vaccine in an age group where benefit would be um, be able to be seen initially uh, sooner than targeting at the youngest age groups that you're talking about in the early childhood. From our Grand Round social media audience, are there states that have passed laws to allow teenagers to receive HPV vaccine without parental consent? There, you know, in the United States, each state um, has laws about minor consent for health care, and, and it really varies state by state. There are certain situations where minors can consent for their own health care. Um, I know California recently um, passed a law that allowed um, adolescents as young as age 12 to consent for the HPV vaccine without parental consent. Um, that's probably the youngest I've seen. Most states, it really is um, you need parental consent, but there are a few exceptions, but they're few and far between. Um, Isabel Deneau. It, it looks like data you have on vaccine uptake is for girls. I'm wondering if there's data for boys and whether parents are more likely to accept vaccination and sexual activity, presumably, for their young sons. I'll let uh, Shannon Stokely address that as well. So yes, because of the, the timing of the survey of when we conduct the NIS teen, you know, the most recent data we had available was 2011, and, and that really represented activity under um, the permissive recommendation, not the routine ACIP recommendation. And as we saw, about 8% of boys have initiated the, the series under the permissive recommendation. We're starting to do more work, um, you know, surveying parents to understand their attitudes for their adolescent boys um, compared to their adolescent girls. And, and I think we're seeing some similar responses. I, I think right now the most important thing we need to do is, is do the education of the parents, because many parents still may not know that their, their adolescent sons you know, actually need this vaccine too. They may know, oh yeah, that's that vaccine for girls. But um, we need to you know, really put it out there that, and educate the parents that they need this vaccine for their sons as well. From our Twitter followers, do patients need to repeat the whole series vaccination if they miss a dose? No, they do not have to. They, just, they can just get the second dose or the third dose. We like people to remain on schedule, but they do not have to repeat the entire series. Hi, my name is Jim Bueller. Given that there are either two or four strains of HPV that are targeted by these vaccines, yet there are many more strains of HPV that are circulating, can you comment on, on concerns that strains that are diminished in prevalence by the vaccine might be displaced by the emergence of other prevalent HPV strains, and is that a, is that a concern? The question is really about 
um, type replacement or yes. yeah so um, that's a, something that's being evaluated but it's not hypothesized to be an issue with HPV because of cohort large cohort studies that haven't shown that um, types replace each other but that is an ongoing um, evaluations are ongoing around that question thank you uh, John Douglas. Um, so I had a question uh, regarding the ideas about increased uh, coverage for either Dr. Middleman or, or uh, Dr. Stokely. Given the difference in Tdap and Meninge, for which many of those uh, strategies would presumably be appropriate as well, what do you think is really the best place to put our money and effort? Uh, we seem to be dealing with a reasonably unique situation that's got to do with parental nervousness provider reluctance to discuss. I think there are data we still need. I'm not sure parents really do feel that it is such a unique vaccine. I think a lot of provider hesitancy about this vaccine is associated with the idea that perhaps parents are wary. But I'm not sure we have data to support that. In fact, um, at my institution, we've done a, a study looking at the difference in the way parents think about the importance of HPV vaccine and the way providers think parents think about the HPV vaccine. And we find that parents rate the importance of HPV vaccine significantly higher than providers rate the parents' rating, <laughs> if you could follow that, uh, for, for the importance of HPV vaccine. So I think a lot of it really does speak to making sure providers understand that it's okay to divorce the sex message from cancer prevention, disease prevention, this is a vaccine that saves lives, and, and move on from there. I think we need to help providers get used to doing that because I think some of their anticipatory fear of parental concerns may not always be warranted. Yeah, I mean, I, I really echo that, and, and I really think, you know, the strategies is really working with the medical home, the primary care providers. We know the teens are going there because they're getting Tdap and meningococcal conjugate vaccine. So they're in the office and it's really improving that communication with the providers, putting strategies within the practice such as, you know, reminders for the physician themselves, not just for the parents, but, you know, putting a system in place at the practice to remind the provider to look at the immunization history and recommend the vaccines that may be missing and then, you know, trying to give them during that visit. And, and I really think um, strengthening primary care providers is, should be the priority. Yes, from Twitter, when do you expect to have data about the trends in prevalence, incidence of cervical cancer as a result of vaccination? Yeah, we anticipate um, for invasive cervical cancer, uh, it'll take uh, many decades, around 20 to 30 years, and it's highly dependent on the vaccine coverage. Uh, but for pre-invasive cancers, we expect to see that impact as early as 10 to 15 years. Thank you all for attending Public Health Grand Rounds. Uh, please join us for our next session of Public Health Grand Rounds. You've been listening to Public Health Grand Rounds from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, presented on ReachMD's series, Grand Rounds Nation. Be sure to join us again for the next episode of the nation's best Grand Rounds. Until then, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and thanks for listening.